1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Please stand in honor of God's word. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by man but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God, to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's really good to see you all. It's good to be back. I'm going to begin again um, with prayer. And I'm going to read a, a text over you first from Romans 12, 1. So go ahead and just get into a prayer posture, whatever that is for you. And hear this from the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present, to present, to present your bodies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Which is your worship. Which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. <clears throat> so for a moment, I just want you to obey this. Minimally, you've done this already. You've brought your bodies into this place. You've presented your bodies. But of course, Paul means your whole person. So I just want you for a moment just to say in your heart, Lord, here I am. I present myself to you. Lord, here I am. I present myself to you.
Well, Lord, thank you that in one sense you've made worship so simple. It is simply in every place to say, Lord, we present ourselves to you. This is worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. I'm going to back up a little bit because I'd like, like to see you. My peripheral vision isn't what it used to be, I guess. You've been in a series, First Peter, letter of First Peter. I've been tracking. I've been listening to Dave, which, by the way, you are a very fortunate people. Let me just say that. Um, and we're going to keep that series going with today's passage you heard read in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. But before we do that, I just want to um, remind us of this. There's no avoiding the fact that you and I have an identity, or maybe more than one, a view of ourselves that helps us make sense of the world and ourselves in the world. This identity you and I carry with us, it helps us on many occasions know what to do, where to go what to say. It's a kind of script sometimes. Without it, we'd be kind of stuttering, paralyzed people. But no, we carry with us an identity or identities that are maybe as various as the people who are here. It could be an identity related to your profession. It could be an identity related to your role in the family. Mother, father, son, daughter, First child, second child, middle child. You could be an educator. You could be a developer. You might say, I'm a nurse. I'm a home economist. I manage our home or properties, its facilities, its finances, its livestock. Well, which is to say children, I guess. (laughs) Or your identity could be a quality. Your identity could be, you know, I'm a kind person. Could be I'm an athletic person, could be I'm a helpful person, could be I'm a funny person, could be I'm a problem solver, could be uh, I'm a confidant of others, could be I'm an attractive person, could be I'm amiable or friendly, could be I'm a creative person, could be I'm a good person. We all carry with us these identities, and that's normal and good. Again, without them, we would hardly know what to do, where to go, what to say, what our role is. It's normal and healthy. I want you to think for a second, what is yours? What are yours, maybe, plural? You know, often we hit upon this early in our lives because it's how we made our way in the world. For example, uh, early on, I um, was involved in athletics. And I realized this worked for me. (laughs) I mean, sometimes. Right? People liked me when I was on the basketball court, as long as I was sinking free throws. That's where I got the applause. It, it, it was a place of security. It was working for me. It was helping me make my way. And again, these are absolutely necessary growing up. Absolutely necessary. Where is the safe place? Where is the who I am? What would that be for you? What was the kind of identity that, again, it could be a, a thing you did or just a quality you had? Put your finger on that. And then maybe it changed over the years. As we move into marriage or family or into careers and vocations, yeah, it could have been that identities were added. What helped you make your way in the world? What is helping you make your way in the world now? Who would you say, I am, in in a very practical, daily way? Like, this helps me get out of bed and, and move out toward people in these places. I am a this. There may be some of you for whom this question is a difficult one. Some of you may be in transition. Maybe you're in between jobs. Maybe you're suddenly empty nesters. We are. Although we apparently raised uh, homing pigeons. (laughs) 
Maybe you've experienced or perceived some failure that has kind of dislodged a view of yourself, someone you thought yourself to be, and now you're not so sure. Well, if you're in that kind of limbo with regard to identity, then you may be in a place emotionally at least akin to some of those who were receiving this letter in the first century. And so I do want to open First Peter this morning. Um, you know, Dave began this letter a few weeks ago describing its setting and audience. Um, those receiving this letter in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, were those who were feeling out of place. In becoming Christians, they had made a break with their identity in the Roman Empire. Dave told us uh, these might be largely Gentile Christians in these churches of Asia Minor. And in becoming Christians, they were no longer, for instance, worshiping the Roman gods that would include the god-man Caesar. They would no longer be involved in the worship of local gods. And you know, this, is a, this would be a bigger deal for them in daily life than it might be for you and I. The Bible scholar N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Galatians, writes that idols were everywhere, and worshiping them was compulsory. The situation was totally unlike, say, church-going in the modern Western world, where people choose to attend public worship or not, choose to attend this church, that church, or drop out altogether. In Paul's world, there was no escape. From the small portable household gods to the massive temples, not least in many of Paul's cities, temples to Caesar or Rome, the gods were everywhere. And there'd be much cultural pressure to publicly worship these gods. It was assumed in the ancient world if something went bad in the city, if there was a tragedy, if there was a flood, if there was a defeat, it's because the gods were angry at being neglected. It was the fault of the people who weren't adequately, publicly worshiping God. Wright says again, anyone who failed to perform the regular duties or take part in the regular festivals was assumed to be a danger to the city and community. <laughs> you were dangerous if you opted out of public worship because the gods might be angry and your neighbors were going to be angry at you. You know, it's like, you know, if you live in a neighborhood full of Laker fans and you root for the Clippers. And somehow in your mind, you know, the basketball gods were, every time the Clippers, uh, Lakers lost, it was your fault. You're not hanging out the banner. You're not publicly rooting. You're not going to the Laker parties. It's a trivial example because it's ridiculous. Well, maybe not. Sports fans can be pretty intense. But yeah, just exponentially multiply that threat. And you understand what it meant for a Gentile Christian to suddenly break from these practices, right? In, 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 in small villages where there are no windows on the door, on the, on the openings of the houses, everybody knew everybody's business. Everybody knew if you took down your household gods. So these people are in the middle of a transition, and it is a threatening transition. Now, there's one twist to this, however, and that is the Jews were kind of exempt from this. Now, we're talking about Gentile Christians, but the Jews, and that would include the Jewish Christians, they were kind of exempt from this. Why is that? Well, first of all, the Jews often in these territories even made up a significant part of the population. And the Romans had come to see that pressuring the Jews into worshiping the pagan gods just didn't work. They were willing to die rather than do it. And there was a limit to Rome's, in many cases, especially against Roman citizens, to that kind of persecution, at least in some decades. And so they had kind of an exemption. There was an exemption um, and Rome kind of struck a deal with the Jews and says, you know, you can worship this one God, Yahweh. 
as long as you pray for the emperor and the Roman Empire in your services, in your synagogues. So the Jews had this kind of exemption. They had this kind of deal that maybe kept the neighbors off their backs a little bit. A little bit. Right? We see in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are attacked by a mob who said they were, they, Paul and Silas, were not advocating customs that are lawful for us to do as Romans. So it didn't always protect Jewish Roman citizens. But by and large, the Jews had a kind of escape clause. And so Gentiles are thinking, well, we're now kind of in the synagogues. We're now worshiping Yahweh. Granted, Christ is, is complicating the situation. He's, you know, people don't understand why. He's God too. Wait, what's going on? But yeah, you know, we're, we're worshiping God. It includes Christ Jesus. Um, we get the exemption too. <laughs> right? We're with these people. We have an identity. And it's going to protect us. Well, not so fast. Because the Jews were a little nervous about Gentiles converting. Because maybe Rome would just go, you know, we've had enough. <laughs> we're losing people from the pagan gods, and bad things are going to happen. Not enough people now are going to be worshiping the Roman gods. We're going to be in trouble. They're going to be angry. All these defectors. And so the Jews are kind of nervous. I mean, Paul has to continually exhort the early church to, like, uh, embrace one another. Because the Jews are like, yikes, what if the Romans say have enough and nobody gets the exemption? It's over. Everybody's got to worship the Roman gods. Again, I have a weak analogy. I used to have a Prius. And it was in the early days when I got the carpool lane. I had that sticker. So I could drive solo. You know, see ya. And you know, it'd be kind of like if some Bill Gates figure, some philanthropist, said, you know, I'm so concerned about the environmental crisis that I'm going to buy, you know, 500,000 Priuses for people in California. And I'm just going to award them lottery, Oprah style. I don't know what, how it goes. but And, you know, I could see where that might make Prius owners like myself nervous. One is like, now all these people are clogging my lane. Two is, what if Caltrans says, it's over? This is not working. There's too many Priuses. You can't all have the carpool lane canceled. Original Prius owners are like, wait a minute, we got there first. So you see how Gentile Christians are in this tough space. They don't really belong to Roman culture anymore. And Paul is urging the Jews to accept their Gentile brothers, but the Jews are like, Ugh. makes us a little nervous. Even the Jewish Christians. And so, this is all to say, that these people were feeling out of place, as Dave said early on. And what Peter is doing throughout this letter, as Dave pointed out early on, is he's trying to give them an identity. I know you're feeling out of place as now a non-pagan worshiper, and I know integrating into the Jewish community has been difficult. But I want to give you today an identity. I want to encourage you. This is who you are. And, of course, uh, Dave helped us see early on that even in the opening verses, he does it. He says, to those who are elect ex exiles of the dispersion, right, in all these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of blood, you are elect exiles, set apart for obedience, set apart for a certain kind of life, set apart for an eternal life that begins now in the present under God who is here. You are elect exiles. You're chosen. And I know you feel out of place. I know that this exile thing is a real thing. Of course, it's true. You are a resident alien, in a sense. There's a famous book by Stanley Harlow and Will Willimon called Resident Aliens about who we are as Christians. You are resident aliens. But now in our passage today, Peter's going to drill down even further and say, let me get more specific about this identity. And so let's take a look at those first few, few verses, um, verses 4 to 6. Come to him, or as you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter in these verses is, is supplying a, a kind of a short series of metaphors to help us imagine, because that's what we need. We need to imagine what's true. You know, it's very hard to desire something if you can't imagine it. I don't know if you notice that. You need to kind of imagine something to go, to make your will move toward it. The imagination is this important faculty to envision something and say, that's good. That's, that's, I want that. I love that. Here he's giving a kind of a short run of metaphors or images. And I'm sure, um, as some of you kind of were contemplating your identity a few moments ago, you were thinking kind of probably in, in image terms sometimes, or at least pictures of yourself. Well, here Peter gives them um, three in a row. He says, you are living stones first. Then he says, you are actually a spiritual house. And then he's going to say, you're a royal priesthood. And there's going to be a fourth in a minute. But he says, I want you to start thinking this way. You're like a living stone. You're, you're being built up into a house. You're a royal priesthood. So let's take them in order. First, well, actually, the first thing Peter says is come. <laughs> or it could also be translated as you come. So the first way we want to picture ourselves is people coming to God. I mean, there's kind of an assumption here. If we take it as as you come, which is kind of like a participle, like coming to Jesus, like as you normally come to Jesus, of course you come to Jesus. It's like the word walking. Walking, turn left. Coming to Jesus, do this. This is there's assumption that you and I, part of our identity is not just individual, but it's always in relationship to Christ. The pattern of our life is always a turning to Christ, always a coming to Christ. It's kind of assumed, just like walking, that we're coming to Christ. And if it's not taken as a participle, you can take it as an imperative. Come to Christ. <laughs> Some translations will be not as you come, making the assumption that you do, but come to Christ. We can't tell in the Greek which it is. Same form for both. So the life of a Christian is an unceasing coming to the Lord. Um, but now again, Peter gives us a series of images. And first thing he says is, you know, you're a living stone. Now, nothing is more lifeless than a stone. <laughs> Stones are mostly problems in our lives. All right, we trip over them. We got to move them. If you lived in Israel, what a pain. If you're a farmer, oh my gosh. Stones in scriptures are not often good things, right? Ezekiel says, God is going to remove your heart of what? And give us a heart of flesh. Idols were frequently made of stone, right? And I think this might be a jab at Peter, at least in saying living stones, a jab at idolatry. Those are dead stones. You're different. You're living stones. Again, which wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, but they get it. We are not like, we are not worshiping a dead idol. Um, Although, of course, it takes a positive turn here. We're told Jesus is the cornerstone. And Peter here is quoting Psalm 118. I will give you thanks, Lord, for you answered me. You became my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this stone not only is living, but it's a saving stone. Jesus first, but we now are a saved and being saved stone. And I think, of course, Peter is winking at us too. Because Peter's name is Petros. You know what Petros means? Rock. Right. So Peter's like, I'm the original stone, by the way. By the way. But then he goes on, Peter does, and says, you know, you're not just a stone, but you're actually being built up into a spiritual house. Now, this actually is the regular term for house, oikos, which we get economics from, among other words. There is a word for temple, naos. It's not used here, but of course, we would be remiss to think there's not an echo here of the temple. You are being built up into a spiritual house. You're actually being built up into a, spirit, into a temple. And we know this, of course, from other places in Scripture. Individually, Jesus actually uh, himself was setting him forth as the high priest and the temple. He began to detach the idea of God's presence from a place from the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus began to be this kind of mobile temple, this portable temple, 
right? This I temple. Whoops, sorry, that's, that doesn't make sense. See, early on, Jesus began his criticism of the temple in one way or another by doing outside the temple, which was normally done inside the temple. He started doing things outside the temple that should have been done, had been done within the temple. For instance, he forgave sins out there, suggesting that he had the authority to forgive the people of God, something that was normally done through only the sacrificial system within the temple. This is dangerous. Right in front of Caiaphas and the leadership, he talks about, Jesus does, destroying the temple and raising it in three days, which is something you just don't say. You don't say stuff like that right in front of the high priests. You see, you got to understand what the temple was for the Jews, man. This was the place. This was the national symbol. This was their identity, the temple was. I mean, when the temple was destroyed the first time, it would be hard for us to imagine what a desecration the Jewish people took this as. What an offense. This is where God lives. This is where our our national, and by Jesus' days, it had become such a sign of nationalism on top of its religious significance that you don't just go and say things like, I'm going to destroy the temple. I mean, these are fighting words. But Jesus says, no, I'm, in so many words, I'm the new temple. I'm the new high priest. He is moving loyalty from a place And I think Jesus still saw good uses of the temple. He was not anti-temple in its original purposes. But he was beginning to move loyalty to the temple to loyalty to himself. And you know what? That's what got him killed. Politically speaking, that's what got him killed. Plenty of people claimed to be divine and things like this. Those guys, people came came and went. That's what got him killed. He was claiming to be a spiritual house. Well, Peter, of course, down the line decades later, knows what it means now that the spirit of Jesus has been transferred to our spirit and says, you, you now, Paul says in Corinthians, you now are also a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, now think of yourself this way. You are a portable temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, both individually, right? First Corinthians six nineteen. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is part of the imagination. Do we see ourselves as kind of mobile temples? (laughs) Places where the Spirit of God resides. Places that people can come to, to to be linked to God in us. We are these places. And then, of course, collectively, this group here, Just because you moved outside, nothing's changed. You are the temple of God out here, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves, plural, you yourselves, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So Peter's moving us down the train of identities. You're a living stone. You're a temple individually and collectively, but that's not dynamic enough, so he's going to move to the next one. And he says now, you are a priesthood a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. He makes the point again in the next passage, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So here we come to the core of it. Here we come to the core of it. We are a royal priesthood. Now again, many of you may not have thought of yourselves uh, this way when I ask you to consider your identity. You may have thought, well, I'm a child of God for sure. Um, and I'm a Christian. That's part of my identity. But I wonder if many of us thought, well, I'm a priest. <laughs> yeah, that's what I am. I'm a priest. Um, well, let's think about that for a little bit now. What would it be to imagine yourself as a priest? You know, the Gentiles kind of would have gotten it. Even though they're Gentiles, they've been hanging around Jews enough, right, where they understood and were well acquainted with the Jewish tradition of temples and priests. And, and, uh, and even though the temple in Jerusalem was far away and, of course, would be destroyed for the second time just a few years after this letter, they got, they got it. They understood what, what, you know, they knew what they're thinking. Um, but, yeah, for us, I think, I think that's a little 
a little harder. I mean, it's not, if you, if you grew up in kind of a conservative evangelical Bible church, we don't have priests. We have elders, we have pastors. But priests, that's kind of weird. Those of you who may have grown up in more liturgical settings, Catholic settings, Orthodox settings, you had priests. And so it kind of depends on your view of them and how that went. But you may have a kind of hesitation. They're like, ah, I don't know if I like the identity as priest. I mean, we might want to translate that. Let's translate it as we're witnesses, maybe, or ambassadors. That works better. But no, I, Paul, uh, Peter and Paul both are urging us to say, no, no, let's stick with this notion that you're a priest. So what did priests do? What would have been in mind of first century Christians? Well, their work involved very, various things. A priest would pronounce blessings, would provide vocal and instrumental music. Thank you. They'd repair the grounds, their facilities guys, plumbing, you know, you had to be jack of all trades, really. They'd police the boundaries of the temple, making sure nothing impure was happening, no desecration, no bodily emissions. <laughs> That's a nice job. Blowing trumpets occasionally, inspecting diseases, going through purification rites. And of course, they themselves had to go through important ritual washings, even to set foot on the temple grounds or in the temple. They would teach the law, priests would, though this, by, as time went by, became more the job of the scribes. But of course, most important, most significant, they had the exclusive right to perform sacrifices. Most of them animals, some of them agricultural. And of course, these were the protocols by which the children of God could come into God's presence, could remain members of the covenant. There were a lot of them. There are hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, tribe of Levi, man. And they didn't all live in Jerusalem. They would live, like, you know, out in the country. And the high, you know what the high point of their year was? See, they would be separated into groups. And when your number got called up, your group of priests, you got to go to Jerusalem. And you got to kind of run the temple for two weeks or for a week at a time twice a year. And then they would cast lots to see who would get to go into the Holy of Holies and burn incense. I mean, this is like so cool if you're a priest. Is my number going to come up today? Am I actually going to go get to be in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies? And it was literally drawn by lots. And it's like, hey. remember the story of Zechariah at the beginning of Luke, John the Baptist's father. He goes in the temple. He's being told he's going to have a baby after the longest drought. He's, he, he's in there because of that. He got the lot. He's in there, the holy holies. The angel comes. He walks out speechless, literally. You can only do that once in your life, by the way. If you were to get the lot the second time, sorry, that's over. You only get to do it once, go in the holy holies. That's what Zechariah was doing in there. Um, so the priest, what was the function of the priest? Was to mediate the presence of God to people to mediate the presence of God, people, to be the, the human representatives to God, to offer sacrifices that would connect people to God. Well, here Peter says, you know, things have changed a little bit with Jesus, but you're still offering sacrifices now as priests. But now he's going to call these spiritual sacrifices. And in fact, Peter picks up two things among what priests do. He says, here are the two things. And again, in verses um, 4 to 6, as a priest, here's your job, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then later on in verses 9 and 10, and here's the second thing as priests that you do. You proclaim the mighty acts of him who called people out of darkness into his marvelous light. You get to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called people out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's take these two as we consider what does it mean to be a priest now? Now that the perfect sacrifice has already been offered, now that we're not offering dead animals, now that we are still moving about the world, what is it to offer spiritual sacrifices? Well, again, the Gentiles would have known what a sacrifice was, so with the Jews, it would be an unblemished animal. But now that that's not only the case, what is it? There's a very easy answer to this question. It is ourselves. We now present ourselves. And here we move into the fourth metaphor. We're not just stones. We're not just houses. We're not just priests. We're the sacrifice. 
But as Paul says in Romans 12, present yourself as living sacrifices. I am both priest and the thing the priest carries. <laughs> I am the priest and I am carrying myself into God's presence. I'm presenting myself to God in the exact language Paul uses in Romans 12. I write to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. There's sacrifice imagery throughout the New Testament, right? Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. In Philippians 2, 17, Paul imagines his life being poured out like a drink offering, which was a kind of sacrifice. In Revelations 3, 4, we're told the smoke of the incense goes up to God together with the prayers of the people. Prayers being this kind of incense, right? In the Holy of Holies. That's what prayer is, right? You're in the Holy of Holies, right? You, you now get to walk right in. Man, you didn't get to do that before. Walk right in, offer your prayers. It's like incense. You know, don't get down on the like liturgical incense stuff. That's a great visualization. You know, I know it's weird. They're like doing this and stuff. But man, that's, they're just trying to help us see what's happening. <laughs> right? Our incense is going up in the Holy of Holies, God's actual presence that we get to be in. And of course, here, in, what does Peter have in mind? Well, it's our conduct that we present to God. Be holy as I am holy, which again, remember early, early on in, in the book, in the letter, we are set apart for obedience. <laughs> to be holy means to be set apart, and you're set apart for obedience. You're presenting your conduct. But, and for me, though, I guess the best picture is back to Romans 12, 1 and 2 of this, and especially Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 12, 1, to present your body as a living sacrifice. Here's how he translated it. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, you know, by the mercies of God, God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Take your ordinary life, your eating, your sleeping, your walking around self, and place it to God as an offering. That is the first thing of what it means to be a priest. Y you and I are still presenting sacrifices. That's what you do. But guess what? The sacrifice is yourself. You are presenting yourself in every place, in every way. How would we do that? Well, I may have shared with you on previous occasions when I've been here, one of my prayer habits. When I wake up in the morning, I'm not eager to get out of bed. I don't know about the rest of you. And my bed, it's a queen-size bed. It's kind of like an altar, isn't it? Kind of, right? And so I just lie on it. And, and you know, when I am kind of come to consciousness, I, I just say, Lord, I present myself to you. Here I am on the altar. I present myself to you. I present this day to you. And then I start to go through, oh, yeah, what am I doing today? <laughs> Sometimes I have to look at my phone, the calendar, you know. Oh, yeah, I have this meeting. Oh, Lord, I present that meeting to you. And it may be a meeting with people I like. By the way, there are people I like and people I don't like, just to be clear. Lord, forgive me. And that's part of what being a sacrifice does, because I may look ahead to that, to that meeting and go, um, oh, Lord, that's so, I just present myself to you there. I, I'm so thankful for these people, Lord, I'm going to see in this meeting. And then, and then the next meeting, Oh, Lord, I really struggle with this person. <laughs> I feel defensive. I feel like they're blaming me. I feel like, ugh. And it's not really I don't like them. It's like I don't like the way they get in the way of my success or whatever. Oh, Lord, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Lord, I just open. I need your healing. You know, Peterson said the best translation of salvation in most places in Scripture was healing. Yeah, we've been saved, but we are being saved. We've been justified, but we are being sanctified. It's a healing. It's, it's purity of heart. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. You see, the, blemish, the unblemished lamb has been sacrificed, so we can be the blemished lambs. <laughs> we can come to him as the blemished lambs and say, Lord, open my heart. See, this is what a priest does. It's not, Peter knew it wasn't just conduct. 
Jesus knew in the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, greater than conduct. It's got to be a righteousness in the heart. Not murdering people, that should be fairly easy, I mean, in most cases, right? But even if you hate someone, oh, Lord. See, purity of heart, that's what the early church fathers picked up on. The Christian was seeking purity of heart. Because, you know, Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it's going to flow your life. Whatever's in your heart, your life is going to flow from it. Your conduct's going to flow from it. When push comes to shove, you need to obey. Obey. You hear me this morning? Obey. Okay? Repent. But unless your heart is being purified, you're not going to be able to. I'm just telling you, you're not going to be able to. You, for a short while, you can play whack-a-mole with your behavior. But unless your heart is changing, it's not going to happen. So this is what a priest does. A priest goes about and says, purify my heart, open it. And you know what does it? It's honest prayer. Prayer is the last place you want to hide from God. Right? Because there's material down there that needs to be dealt with. The Psalms are full of honest prayer. Again, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, even when I'm doing Christian things. <laughs> and lead me in the way everlasting. The priest is an expert at coming to Jesus and opening his or her heart in honest prayer. Lord, I am angry, maybe. There's a lot of anger right now, right? It's a lot of anger. And you know, not all anger is bad. But anger is a transitional emotion. It needs to go someplace. It can't just sit there in anger. It needs to go towards some kind of purified action. It needs to go towards some kind of humility, maybe. It needs to go toward some kind of um, reconciliation. But yeah, if you have to start with anger, start with anger. Bring that into the Holy of Holies. Open your heart. Lord, I'm so angry. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Where do, you, where do you want to take this? This is the work of a priest. To present him or herself as living sacrifices. What's the second thing a priest does? What does it mean to proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into this mar marvelous light? Well, this is a great joy. We get to proclaim, to remind to display, to point out, to communicate God's excellencies and his marvelous light. You know, the word for excellencies here, is that what's on the screen? Um, maybe it's further up. Anyway, to proclaim his excellencies is actually the word eritas, which means kind of his, um, his goodness, kind of... Uh, the ways in which he knows how everything works. He knows how everything works. You know, Romans 12, 2, the verse after Romans 12, 1, of course, where we present our bodies living sacrifices, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this pattern of the world, but by the renewing of your mind, be transformed. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, What comes first is presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And as you do that, and as God purifies your heart, then you begin to see. God's will, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. What does the Beatitudes say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God becomes clearer. His magnificence becomes clearer. His ways become clearer. Then we know what to do. Then we know how to move out into the world. What it, might it mean to do this? Well, it comes to the whole worldview, doesn't it? As priests, we look out at the world and we say, look, this world belongs to God. And I'm set apart to help people make the next step to God. You see, a priest is someone who moves people toward God, who proclaims him, his marvelous excellencies. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, my job is to help people take that next step. It might be someone who already knows Christ. I'm a priest. What I do is I connect people to God. I wonder if what for this person is the next step for them in collecting to God. That's how a priest thinks. This person belongs to God. They don't belong to me. And they're moving toward God. I mean, everything in this world is this cycle of God descending, giving us his, 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 his creation, his son, his spirit, and everything going back to him in praise and offering, being offered back to him. Romans 8, right? All creation is groaning for God. 
Romans 8, we are given the Spirit and we're crying out, Abba, Father. The priest looks out at the world and says, everything is crying out for God, whether it knows it or not. I mean, they may be directing it this way and that, crazy, but they're groaning for God. You as a priest get to come alongside them and say, and this might be the next step for you. Might be a believer, might be a non-believer. They don't belong to you. You get to be a priest because they belong to God and turn them back. It may be offering some light, his marvelous light, or some wisdom. It may be blessing people. Remember, that's what a priest did, went around just blessing people with love and compassion, encouragement. It may be a small or large sacrifice of your time or skills. It may be listening. Maybe that's the thing, the next step for them that's going to help connect them to God. You know what it may be? It may be holding your tongue. Perhaps you have some truth buried inside you that you want to communicate to someone. They've got to see it this way. You've got to see this. But your job isn't just to get them on your side or, or, or present them to yourself or your views. No, you want to hesitate for a moment and go, what will actually help them take a step toward God? Maybe it's that. But as a priest, we say, that's not the highest thing, is me persuading them of my current kind of hobby truth, which may be true. It's to say, ah, but what's good for them in their next step toward God? It may be praying for them, which is what a priest does, comes alongside people and says, can I pray for you? Can I lead you right into the Holy of Holies? Don't say that because they may not get it, but can I? You know what I found? Even with non-believers, when I say, can I pray for you? They say something so surprising. They say, yeah. And I'm surprised. I'm like, really? <laughs> ah, that's what we do as priests. That's what we get to do, to lead people to his marvelous excellencies. And I know some of you have had moments like this with people. They kind of know, they wouldn't say you're a priest, but they're like, I think, you know, I think Chris White believes in God, or, you know. I think Gina Carpenter is kind of spiritual in some way, you know. And they go to you because they sense, this person might connect me to God. Or they may not even say that. They, they come to you in moments of tragedy and marriage and divorce and, and births and deaths. And I need somebody to connect me to God. Guess what? You're a priest. You may be a mom priest or a contractor priest or a developer priest. Or This is your identity. You're a priest. And you can lead people into the presence of God. You're priests. I'm going to leave you with two images. One has to do with our presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices. This is my friend, um, Alan Fadling. Some of you may know Alan. He's on the ground there. Alan is... Uh, had some traffic with this church. He's helped the staff. He's led them on seminars and retreats. Um, this is my church. I belong to a Protestant, evangelical, Anglican church. Just to be clear, evangelicals sometimes dress up like this. That's Todd Hunter. He's the bishop. Uh, some of you may know Todd Hunter in his books. Todd Hunter is a great friend of many of us, great friend of Todd Proctor's and Lisa's. Um, but this is Alan's ordination. He's becoming ordained as a priest. And at some point in the service, this happens. The priest lies prostrate on the ground, prone. Not to Todd Hunter, who's in the chair, but to God. He's presenting himself as a living sacrifice. And you could say, well, he's going to be a priest in the church, so that's appropriate. No, no. You know the doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. Yeah, there's a special set of priests in the Old Testament called the Levites, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. There, there was the priesthood of all believers way before there was the priesthood of all believers. See, what our priests do is they model for us. This is what your life looks like. You present, you lie down, you present your whole self to God, not just at certain moments every day. It's a little like me on the bed. Lord, I present myself to you. The second a picture I don't have an image of. I wish I did. I actually spent way too much time looking for it on the internet. I had to give up. I figured somebody had to take a picture of this. 
It was the mid-1980s. I was at a Stanford football game. And you may or may not know that Stanford, since 1982, has never really had a mascot. I know you see the tree, but that's not official. Circle slash. No, we've never had a mascot. We're the Stanford Cardinals, not a bird. It's a color. It's a little weak. We've never had a mascot. One day I was at a game, and I looked up, and lo and behold, there was a guy going up and down the stairs, dressed in full, like, Vatican religious robes, with one of those domed hats, blessing people in the stands. He was the Stanford Cardinal. <laughs> in that snarky, clever way that Stanford students can do. He was the Stanford Cardinal. But you know, as irreverent as that may have seemed, it stuck with me. I kind of liked it. Because <laughs> without the robes, kind of, we're plain clothes priests, right? We are moving around the area, and we're just like, we look at the world differently. We're like, oh, these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd, or sheep with a shepherd. And I wonder what the next step is toward the still waters. We're moving around like blessing people at work. Think of the people at work right now. Think of them. Okay, yeah, they're your employees or they're your colleagues. But you know what? They're just like, you just, your priestly part steps over here and goes, ah, look at them. I wonder, as a priest, you're driving your kids to school. You're driving other people's kids to school. Those other kids don't belong to me. These kids do belong to me, but I'm still kind of a priest here. Huh. How can I present these people to God? This is the way it was supposed to be. Adam was the first priest. When he was told to cultivate and keep the garden, those two words actually are translated in other places as serve and guard. And those are the exact words every time when they're put together, they use what the priest does at the temple. The priest serves and guards. Adam was the first priest. All Israelites and now all Christians were meant to be priests. Yes, we are exiles, but guess what? The world is still the Lord's, the world is his temple. We are to multiply and fill it, not just with people, but with the presence of God, who is always already here, but we're directing people toward it. And we ourselves are humbly practicing his presence, letting ourselves be sanctified to lead others to him. That is your identity. Heavenly Father, we present ourselves to you. We present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. Lead us in the everlasting way so we may be priests to others and we may receive the priestly ministry of others. In Jesus' name, amen.